My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. So recently I was promoted to a new role on the executive team at my company, hence the many weeks since releasing a podcast. But we're back now, so let's dive right into it. To open the show today, you'll have to let me wax a bit nostalgic. Kids being raised today won't get the opportunity to experience all the things that we old people experienced growing up, obviously. One of the big ones that sticks out to me is going to a library. My wife still takes my children to the library to pick out books they find interesting, but this process is mostly for letting the kids see all the different kinds of books, to touch them with their hands and explore their pages. This is done to help create some wonder in our kids about books. However, most non-public libraries around the country are struggling financially just to continue. The problem is this. Most libraries aren't the centers for public knowledge that they once were. Whereas growing up, the library got us through school, now kids have the internet, right? Do you remember your parents dropping you off at the library so you could rummage through the encyclopedia pages for a school paper or study in a quiet corner with all those reference books at your disposal? Well, now all of that and more can be accomplished on a computer, a tablet, or even a smartphone. Now, why am I dragging on like this? In the late 1800s, America saw the explosion of libraries across the states. Utah, of course, would be caught up in this. In this time period, we see people like Dale Carnegie emerge. Carnegie was an American businessman and philanthropist who loved libraries and saw their importance in America. So starting in the year 1883, he would begin the process of working with cities to donate the funds to acquire a building and books to open a library. And over the next 46 years, he donated the funds for the building of over 2,500 libraries in the world. Utah, during these years, would also see the importance of libraries. Officials in Utah would be in contact with the Carnegie Foundation, and 23 libraries would be built in the state between the years 1900 and 1918. This amazing work of creating these buildings of knowledge was also supported by the state of Utah. In 1896, a Library Act was created that proposed a public tax for the creation of libraries. Not only were the people behind this tax to build public libraries, but in the late 1800s, Utah would see the emergence of book clubs and Mormon church groups that would be collecting funds to also build libraries. The state of Utah in 1907 would even appoint a secretary over the creation of libraries. Utah envisioned these buildings literally changing the culture of the state. According to the first secretary of the library's project, Howard Driggs, these libraries would be the center of community culture, recreation, and education. It would complement the temperance movement, serve as an alternative for saloons, and create a home for the street boys. Some of those ambitions were a bit grandiose, but they saw this as granting the public access to knowledge, which would change their lives, and they were exactly right. Utah now houses one of the largest public libraries in the West. The Salt Lake City Public Library was opened in 1898. 
Its growth has seen it change a few locations, but it now is in downtown Salt Lake City, and it has a five-story tall building that has grown a collection of over 500,000 book, newspaper, and magazines. Now, that's huge. But in case you're wondering, that doesn't even land the Salt Lake City Library on the top 25 list for biggest libraries in the world. Some libraries today are gigantic and a testament to our commitment to higher learning. The top five biggest libraries in the world in order are these. Number five is the Russian State Library with over 44.4 million items. Number four is the Library of Archives in Canada with over 54 million items. Number three is the New York Public Library with over 55 million items. And number two is the British Library with over 150 million items. And finally, the largest library in the world, you may have guessed it, it's the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. It has over 167 million items. The Library of Congress is gigantic, and every day over 12,000 more items are added to it. If you haven't visited the Library of Congress, it should definitely be on your list of to-dos. I sometimes envision how great it would be to somehow get locked up in there with no way out and just to be able to peruse the miles of books. Just to give you an idea of its grandeur, like I said, the Library of Congress houses over 167 million items on approximately 838 miles of bookshelves. The library is broken up into collections. For example, the Law Library is the largest law library in the world. There is a rare books and manuscripts section that holds the largest rare books collection in North America, including the first known book printed in North America. It holds many interesting rare books and collections. For example, it has the Presidential Papers. This section contains all the manuscripts of 23 presidents of the United States, ranging from George Washington to Calvin Coolidge. There is the Gutenberg Bible, which was created in the 15th century and is one of only three perfect copies in the world. And lastly, it also has the smallest book in the world. It's called Old King Cole, and it's 125th of an inch, or about the size of a period on your computer. Not sure why it was created or who could possibly read that. Now, I'm touching on all of this because I'm trying to impress upon you the size of the biggest library in the world that most people know about. But considering all of that, what if I told you that there was a private library that contained over 32 times the amount of information as is found in the Library of Congress, and that that library was backed up in a giant granite cave in a quiet Utah mountain. Today's object is the Genealogical Society of Utah. So what is the Genealogical Society of Utah, and how did it come about? In the last episode, we discussed how Wilford Woodruff revealed the Manifesto of 1890. In that revelation, the church was to finally walk away from polygamy, thus freeing up the leadership and the members to do the work of preaching the gospel and growing the kingdom on earth. If you'll recall, it wasn't the threat of arrests, the loss of civic rights, or confiscation of personal property that compelled President Woodruff to ask the Lord what was to be done. It was the fear that the members were going to lose their temples. Wilford Woodruff, as much as any Mormon prophet to this point, was deeply moved by the work being performed in the temples. And for us to understand our object, and by extension, that giant hidden library vault in the mountains, we need to start with Joseph Smith. 
If you recall, in episode 28, we discussed how Joseph Smith kicked off the temple work that Mormons do for the dead. This is more than just baptisms. It's covenants around the blessings promised to Abraham in the Old Testament. Now, during these years where the work was revealed, two separate and very important revelations were received by Joseph Smith that start the snowball rolling on our object today. The first came on September 1st of 1842. It came regarding this work for the dead, and it's now canonized as Doctrine and Covenants section 127. In it, it says, quote, And again, let all the records be had in order, that they may be put in the archives of my holy temple to be held in remembrance from generation to generation, saith the Lord of hosts, end quote. So roughly what that is saying is that God was commanding the church members to begin the process of creating a record for all the names for whom this work was to be done. A second revelation came shortly later and is now Doctrine and Covenants section 128. It takes this further by saying, quote, Let us, therefore, as a church and a people, and as Latter-day Saints, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, and let us present in his holy temple when it is finished a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation, end quote. So there it is. Joseph Smith said the Lord commanded them to create a book containing the records of the dead as an offering of righteousness. The church would do more than fill a book. They'd fill up a mountain. So let's hop back to the 1890s. The church now had a number of working temples, and with polygamy off the board, Wilford Woodruff could focus on furthering the doctrine of temple work. To this point, After members were baptized and baptized for their dead ancestors, one of the next covenants to be done in the temple was that of sealings. This covenant was a commitment with God that would seal husbands to wives and children for eternity. A beautiful doctrine that the church members clung to as they struggled across the frozen deserts, often burying family members in shallow graves along the way. Now, up until 1894, the church members had been practicing a form of sealing called the law of adoption. This law was taking place because at the time, most temple work for the dead was limited to first-generation deceased ancestors who would remain true to the faith. Beyond that first generation, members of the church would often adopt themselves into the family of an early church leader, believing that such an adoption would bring a greater chance of salvation. This caused President Woodruff to ponder on the role of eternal families. So, in April of 1894, President Woodruff was pondering the law of adoption when he said he received a revelation. In that revelation, Wilford Woodruff said that the Lord furthered their understanding of temple work. Members going forward were to be sealed to their fathers and mothers and direct ancestors going back as far as they could. When he announced this at the following general conference, this officially ended the practice of the law of adoption. In the Revelation, President Woodruff said he was told, quote, When a man receives the endowments, adopt him to his father, not to any other man outside of the lineage of his fathers. This is the will of God to his people. We want the Latter-day Saints from this time to trace their genealogies as far as they can and to be sealed to fathers and mothers, have children sealed to their parents, and run this chain through as far as you can get it. End quote. With this shift to focusing on ancestors, President Woodruff emphasized the need for genealogical research 
and historical record-keeping among the members of the church. So here we are, arriving on our object. With the members now focused on practicing work for their dead ancestors in the temples, a commitment to genealogy research was needed. So on November 13th, 1894, Wilford Woodruff scheduled an organizational meeting in the church offices in Salt Lake City to found the Genealogical Society of Utah. In that meeting, Woodruff said, the Articles of Association of the Genealogical Society of Utah were to provide three types of purposes for the organization. They were to be benevolent, educational, and religious. The benevolent goal was to be met by establishing and maintaining a genealogical library for the benefit of society members and others. The educational purpose was to disseminate information regarding genealogical matters, and the religious goal was to acquire records of the dead in order to enable the performance of church ordinances on their behalf. So, what is the Genealogical Society of Utah? It was a society formed by church leadership established primarily to aid in temple work. Its chief function was the gathering, classification, and tabulation of genealogical information to be used by those engaged in the performance of vicarious ordinances for their dead kindred. Now, let's talk about how much information they gathered. When the Genealogical Society kicked off in 1894, the members contributed 11 volumes of genealogical data. So the church immediately set in collecting, copying, and purchasing any and all data it could get its hands on. By 1995, the library had grown to more than 258,000 volumes of genealogy. To make this information more accessible in the 1960s, the church began the process of microfilming records, or taking pictures of it, all around the globe. To further this work and share their results, the Genealogical Society of Utah would open over 4,600 family history centers around the world. Thanks to this work, the Genealogical Society of Utah now contains over 2.4 million rolls of microfilm from over 120 countries. For reference, those 2.4 million rolls equate to over 35 billion images of genealogical information. This faithful work has not only made this the largest library in the world by far, but the Genealogical Society of Utah is the largest genealogical society in the world. Now, how did the Genealogical Society of Utah grow within the church? Over the years, as the society grew, it changed names multiple times. In 1944, it was renamed the Genealogical Society of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In 1975, it was renamed again to be simply the Genealogical Department. And finally, in 1987, it was named the Family History Department. And that is the name that has stuck to today. I worked for a technology company a few years back, and the Family Search Department invited us to their headquarters to pitch our product to their team. They have a fairly large building at Temple Square in Salt Lake City and now employ a couple hundred individuals and volunteers to maintain this collection of data. It's an impressive demonstration to the church's commitment to genealogy work. So, now that the church contains the largest library in the world, how do they protect it? Let's now talk about that granite library up in the mountains. In 1960, the church decided to dig a giant vault into the side of the granite up Little Cottonwood Canyon in Salt Lake County. These vaults were completed in 1965 and dedicated in 1966. 
Now a backup of all the genealogy records lie beneath 700 feet of solid granite, which consists of a series of tunnels that contain over 65,000 square feet. The vault contains negative copies of all of the microfilm. It's also protected by a 14-ton steel door, which is supposed to protect it from a nuclear blast. Let's hope they never have to test that. So the records are now safe, but you can't enter the vault. So how are they shared? In 1984, the church created the first desktop genealogy management software. And by 2013, the software would be provided as a free online service. You can now access all the information contained on those billions of records from the comfort of your own home. Take that, Library of Congress. Regarding the current state of the Genealogical Society and their impact on the world, George Durant, a former director of the Family History Department, said, quote, These and other resources have aided millions of researchers in finding their roots and have made possible the performance of temple ordinances for millions who have lived and died without that opportunity, end quote. Now, how can you see the Genealogical Society of Utah or the Family History Center? You can visit the Family History Center in downtown Salt Lake City, or for a more personal touch, you can go right now into the App Store and download the Family Search app and begin to access public information about your ancestors. In closing, just a cool story. In order for all of these records to be searchable online, the records must first be indexed, meaning people had to go through each and every record one by one and type up the information into the church's databases so that it could be searchable. Even with thousands of volunteers helping in this process, the work of indexing information was so vast that the church began to look for new ways to help get this work done. But where could the church find thousands of people willing and able, time permitting, to assist in this work. Starting around the year 2005, the church began to recruit prison inmates in Utah to help them do this. This turned out to be mutually beneficial, as the Utah State Prison was looking for a way to provide the men work they could do during the day that would look favorable to a parole board. On top of that, the inmates would learn valuable research skills. Over the past decade, this work at prisons has expanded to over 32 prisons and jails across Utah, Idaho, and Arizona. In 2013, inmates using church-supplied computers processed over 2 million records. In 2014, they did over 7.5 million records. The work is growing due to demand to participate from inmates. When pressed as to why the work in prisons was moving forward so well, the Utah State Prison replied that the inmates, quote, enjoyed the good feelings that came from helping in this work, end quote. So, if you access the church's genealogical data, not only are you tapping into the largest library in the world, your records may have been digitized by a prison inmate. Tell me there's a cooler library in the world. So, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects, episode 46 Genealogical Society of Utah. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. We've only got a few more episodes left in the series, and I hope you'll enjoy me for the rest of the way. Thanks again for listening.